and welcome to another History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to the A Song of Ice and Fire book series by George R. R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones. I'm just one of your hosts, I'm Steve, aka the friggin' Italian, out here in Los Angeles. With me, of course, is my trusty co-host, Aziz. Hey, Steve, uh, out here in Atlanta, as usual, getting ready to talk about some minor characters, minor houses, so it's be a lot of fun. And we have a special guest with us today, this week. And uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself. Greetings. This is Larry Williams of Otaku Assemble. Right on. YouTube channel. And I want to thank you guys for having me on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. And we really appreciate it. I know it took a little bit of work for us to get all together. But uh, we're here now. So let's go ahead and get this thing started. I'm going to let Aziz start off. Um, we looks like we'll be talking about some of the more minor houses. The secondary um, uh, houses that are more like in a supporting role um, throughout right. the show. Absolutely. We've got one thing that's great about Game of Thrones, whether you're a fan of the books or the show or both, is that the minor characters play a huge role uh, that, compared to other series, other forms of entertainment. A lot more attention is given to making them full characters, making them real and believable, and giving them psychological profile, background, and a fully fleshed out personality rather than just being, uh, you know, two-dimensional uh, figureheads that represent, um, you know, warrior or mother or father, just very generic stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the, the effect that these characters have when these characters are more, uh, when, they're, when we care about them more, even though they're minor characters, it gives us a lot more to think about, a lot more to feel. When a, when a minor character dies in, a, in another show, or another book, we we don't care as much because we haven't learned as much about them. We don't understand how their mind works. We haven't seen as much about them. George does such a great job of making these characters more realistic and more thorough, and more part of the story. That uh, I think it's a really important part of what makes Game of Thrones a standout, um, you know, a standout form of entertainment, a standout series. So I like you. I like you. Um, I like your term of using fleshed out. I mean, because that's really what happens there. He does flesh these characters out so much that you do care when, you know, this secondary character dies. So, like, any other TV show would be like, okay, who is that again? Yeah, exactly. You're just like, oh, well, that was bad. And you can almost see how it's going to happen. When a, in, a, in another show, when a minor character is, is threatened, you, you can, be, you know, it's, it's, it's almost expected, well, well, this character could easily die. But if it's a major character, if it's one of those few select characters, you never really feel like they're in danger. Uh, Game of Thrones is going to change that, because not only are the major characters are in danger, but the minor characters feel like major characters. So you really care what happens to them. So, so let's get started with, with we're going to go with mostly uh, characters that kind of come in pairs. That just kind of worked out. Uh, we didn't set out to do it that way, but the way it, the way it panned out, we kind of realized that's what we had. So real quick, we'll review who we're going to be talking about, and then we'll just get into it. Uh, we're going to start with uh, a pair of northern houses and a pair of western houses, and then one uh, house that's in the reach. The northern houses are the Mormonts and the Cassells, uh, Jorah and Gior Mormont, Lord Commander Mormont. And the Cassells, maybe that name doesn't mean as much to you, but you certainly know the characters. That's Jory and Roderick Cassell. Jory is the guy who... Gets stabbed through the eye by Jamie. <laughs> that's that's hard to forget. Yeah. And Roderick is the one executed by Theon with Catelyn and all that. So, and then we're going to talk about the Cleganes, 
the Hound and the Mountain That Rides. Uh, those are two uh, big epic characters uh, with great epic nicknames. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the Tarleys, Samwell and his father, Randall. And the other Western house that I skipped over is the Paynes. Eileen Payne, the King's Justice, that mute executioner. And Podrick Payne, who is his cousin. And that's Tyrion Squire, the one who uh, has trouble forming sentences. We have two, uh, two speech challenge guys there. <laughs> so we'll start off with, Damn let's it. say, we'll start off with, uh, who do we have first here? Uh, let's start with the Mormons. Uh, so real quick, I'm going to give a, a quick bit of history on the Mormons, because we are a History of Westeros podcast, and then we're going to launch in with a with, uh, discussion about specifics. So starting off, we have the Mormons are, uh, it's kind of funny how they came to be such an important uh, part of the series. We've got Dior is the Lord Commander, is Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and he's, he's sort of a mentor figure to Jon Snow. And Daenerys has Ser Jorah, his son, uh, as her mentor, essentially. So we've got this very minor northern house, very remote. They live way out in the north there. If you can see this map behind me, way up in the corner there. Uh, beyond the wall there, almost beyond the wall, slightly south of the wall to the east of the bay up there. That's Bear Island. I don't know if you can even see that. Uh, but it's extremely remote. It used to be ruled by a family called the Woodfoots. Uh, the Woodfoots were, ex were extinguished entirely by the Ironborn. Uh, the Ironborn raiders came, drove all the Woodfoots away, killed them all, and took it over. Eventually... Yeah, uh, for, for you TV viewers, the Ironborn are pretty much the Greyjoys right now. Right. Um, they're, they're, they're out of the Iron Islands. This is where Theon's family comes from. So they're the ones who actually, they're, they're known as a raiding culture, again, and they're the ones who actually know, they, they would raid all up and down the entire uh, western coast of, of Westeros. And so they were, they were definitely a, threatened, a threat to be recognized, um, to the point that the Starks even had to quell them at one point, which is how... They got Theon as a hostage in their family. Right. So what happened from there was eventually the Starks came in conflict with the, the Iron Men on Bear Island, and apparently some sort of wrestling match resolved it. This is probably an allegory or a metaphor or something else, something more severe, like they wrestled over the island. I don't know. But I, I kind of doubt it was actually a wrestling match. But, but anyway, it's funny. We have Stark! <laughs> king Roderick Stark defeated some Ironborn king, perhaps, in this match, <laughs> wrestling match. And since then, the Mormonts have ruled it. The king, king Roderick Stark gave it to the Mormonts. They're, they're a very tough culture. The, the, being so isolated and being under constant threat of invasion by the Ironborn has made them a very tough culture. The women fight, they wear mail, and they defend the children when the men are off fishing or hunting or whatever they need to do to uh, survive in this harsh uh, environment. But let's talk about the character specifically. That's, I think that's, uh, that's, that's more what we're here for. Let's talk about Lord Commander Mormont. He's obviously a, like I said, a father figure to John, but he's an interesting character in that he one of the few people who voluntarily took the black. Most of the characters on the wall we see very early are rapers, thieves, poachers, criminals, essentially. And I think Right, and I think that's why a big part of why Gior takes to Jon Snow, because Jon is not from that crowd. He's a, he was nobly born, he's a northerner, and he's a, basically an all-around good kid. So what do you guys think about uh, Gior? Larry, what, do you, what, what are your thoughts on him? Well, for, first off, I love the actor. Um, I, I, I forget the actor's name who uh, portrays him, but I've seen him in many things before, like he's in Braveheart, he's in Troy. Great James actor, Cosmo. first and foremost. 
Yeah. Yeah, and um, so I, I thought that was like the, the perfect, I thought that was a perfect choice in order to, um, to portray him because what you're talking about is you're talking about a character who clearly, I mean, not just physically, but also the way he speaks, you know, you can, you can tell he's, you know, wise and old, and like he's seen his share of fighting and whatnot. Um, another thing that intri- that uh, that actually intrigues me about his character, I'm curious, um, just looking at his his interactions with John, and like when he speaks to John, and like when he, um, it, it's not just a matter of, it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm in charge, I'm your commanding officer, this is what you have to do. It's also more of a, of a tutelage type thing, where it's like, I actually want you to learn what I'm trying to teach you. And I'm curious if, in some weird way, Commander Mormont is trying to make up for potentially his his estranged relationship with Jorah by trying to mentor another younger person. That makes sense, especially with the sword, giving him the sword and all that. That's that really fits in with that theory, I think. Right, right. Because um, because when 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 Mormont's, uh, I think when he's first introduced, I don't even think um, the way they portrayed in the series, you actually put two and two together. That that's Jorah's dad. I, I don't think they're um, they're introduced like that until Jorah mentions that his dad was yeah he was a warrior and this and that. And then that's when you piece it together. And then it's like the following episode is when he gives Long Claw to John. So that's why I, I kind of get that impression. That's kind of sneaky. You're right. I, I didn't. That didn't occur to me because I started off with the books and and when you see the name Mormon, it's hard to miss that in print. But in the show, it's a sneakier because you just say hey oh yeah. Those two guys are related. How about that? That's the son he is talking about, the one that betrayed his house or, or you know, he at least had the grace to leave the sword behind. He didn't he didn't, you know, sully the his name even further. Um, and yeah, that so that that the long claw that whole episode, it does kind of feel like uh, uh, he's a bit a bit of a surrogate father to John. And they're kind of alone, they're kinda of isolated there. Like I said, they're they're surrounded by a bunch of Scumbags, really. Like, the, the, the watch is, <laughs> Tyrion says the watch is really, and 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 Jamie kind of says it too. They're a bunch of. They're, they're not a. They're not what they're built to be. <laughs> they're supposed to be this brave group of, of warriors who are defending the realm, but really, it's a midden heap where the, the the criminals get tossed, and they used to be that balance where there were a lot of nobles to balance out the, the criminal element. It's not so much anymore. So you kind of feel like. John and, and uh, Lord Commander Mormont are sort of sort of sticking together in a sense. Um, I agree, and, and uh, I really agree with the, what Larry is saying. Is like, I, I, first off, I love the character, to, the the actor they chose to to portray, uh, to portray the Lord Commander, because I mean, uh, he's got such a, a great commanding presence. When he first comes out, the very first time he's standing up there, it's almost like he's on this. I don't know, like a presidential pulpit kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, and he's above the guy that's actually going to be beating them and training them into submission to being, you know, Night's Watchmen. And and so, like, you know, he's almost revered in that respect, the way they presented him. And it was a great choice of an actor. He's a, he's very eloquent. And um, I didn't realize he was in Braveheart. I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he was the father to the redhead, the, you know, the redheaded guy that's, that's Mel Gibson's best friend, the old father guy gets hand chopped off. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah. And, and then, then yeah, fights I mean, a little longer and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's been around. He's a great actor. I, I like him, too. Yeah. And, and like Larry said, he's in Troy also. He was, uh, it was he in Troy? I forget. He was one, he of, was, the, uh, one of the, the uh, Trojan generals. Yeah, the captain of the Trojan guards. You're right. Yeah. And But the thing is, if you've seen the, some of his behind-the-scenes stuff, he's actually a funny guy. He's <laughs> quite hilarious. He's, he's like, you know, oh, look at this beautiful summer landscape behind me. He's standing in Iceland. <laughs> 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 you know, he also did a voice. He, one of the one of the uh, video games that was put out, Game of Thrones video games. Um, which one was it? The one for uh, there's so many games now for Game of Thrones. I forget which one, which one it is. It's the one where you have two characters. Where you're either playing a Night's Watchman or a, a Westerman, and he does the voice for Lord Commander Mormont in that game too. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool. So yeah, uh, his voice is very recognizable. But let's talk about his son. Let's talk about Jorah. Well, I, want to, I want this one more thing about the, the Night's Watch thing. Sure. It's like, you know, it needs to be made clear that, that in the early days, it was an honor to serve on the Night's Watch. It was a very big deal. I mean, if you volunteered to be on the Night's Watch, people looked up to you. And, you know, by the time, you know, this time period rides around, you know, around 300 years after Aegon's Landing, you know, it's like, you know, oh, you're you're going to the Night's Watch? <laughs> oh, what did you do? You know, I mean, it, it's really, it's, it's a punishment. Right. Uh, uh, quick, quick comment on that, though. I think um, I think that really comes across when you when you look at the reasons why John joined in the first place, because remember, John grew up with the Starks. And uh, according to Ned, there were there was always a member of the Stark family in the Night's Watch. And so they would know what it was like back when it actually was a noble thing to do. Um, yeah, very so, and, and it's like every generation is, so So they, they have the history of it's like, wow, it used to be like this, and now this is what it is now. But they keep uh, they keep instilling, and John is like, no, you know, even though it's like this, this is everything it stands for. Yeah, yeah. They they want to. They're kind of stuck in the past. They want to. They're, they're like talking about how it should be and how it was and how what it should, you know what they want it to be. Really points home that whole the whole discussion with Tyrion and John on the way to the Wall. That really points at home that uh, John actually says you're the only one who told me really what it's like, as opposed to what it should be. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, but it really hits home on that point. Because uh, they do that on the way to the wall, and he didn't realize it until he got there. He's like, these are just a bunch of rapists and thieves and murderers. Yeah, because the, the Starks are talking about what the wall, what service to the wall means. Not They're not describing the average Night's Watchman, right? They're, <laughs> they're saying, oh, well, well, how could you say it's not a noble thing to serve the wall? You're protecting the realm. You're defending, you're giving up your life. Like, how could that not be a noble thing? And then on the other hand, you have Tyrion saying, yeah, but look who your brothers are. Who, who are these brothers in arms you're serving with? These are like the worst of the worst. So it's just, it's two different ways of looking at it. The wall as an institution and the wall as, as it pertains to who its members actually are. So that's a kind of a, it's a bit of a dichotomy there. So Jorah himself, Jorah Mormont, uh, Gior's son, on the other side of the world with Daenerys, and he is a bit of a different character. He's, whereas Gior has... No nobility and and service and duty written all over him. Jorah has a lot of that same thing, but with a streak of weakness. You can call it maybe a weakness for women, perhaps. 
if you follow the story, his story of how he got to be where he is, basically he just kept trying to give his wife what she wanted, even if it meant breaking the law. And of course, we just talked about how nasty Bear Island is. It's harsh and remote. And you consider his this wife that he was trying to please was basically the equivalent of a, a highborn princess. She's not literally a princess. She's just from one of the you know, top she, houses, the second most wealthy house in all of Westeros. She, she's one of the wives of Bear Island. Right. And so, yeah, so you go from being a southern princess type who's used to warm weather and being waited on hand and foot and, and courts and balls and, and tournaments to going to Bear Island where they don't even have, like, a singer. I mean, they, they have, they hardly, the women wear chainmail to dinner. I mean, that's a lot different than gowns and, and, and court settings. So, he did everything he could to make her happy, but it just wasn't in the cards. Eventually, he had to flee overseas because he tried to sell slaves, which is, of course, a huge crime, a crime punishable by death. Um, with Ned being who he is. Ned probably would have executed him, although he may have been allowed to take the black. Uh, but so he became an exile, and he started off kind of as a traitor to the person he was mentoring. He started off being... He's sending messages about about uh, Danny, which she, you know, at this point, she still doesn't know that. But we, we viewers and readers know this because we've seen him, you know, talking, receiving messages from Varys. Now we've also seen that he is he made his fateful decision. He decided not to go for to return from exile and to claim a lordship. He decided that Daenerys meant more to him than that. So he does have. You know, he's not a totally bad guy, uh, obviously, and he's, I'm not trying to paint him as a bad guy, but he's obviously got a streak of, you know, uh, negativity. I don't know what you want to call it. He's not, he's not perfect. He's not as noble as his father, perhaps. But he is, but that makes him interesting. His flaws make him uh, a compelling character. Uh, what do you guys think? What do you, what's your read on Jorah overall as a character? Larry? Well, um, the the funny thing is, like, I, in, in many ways, I view Jorah the same way I view his dad, and that's Dick. He comes across to me as a um, a redeeming type character, you know. In the in the same way how I talked about how uh, Commander Mormont, after what happened with Jorah, how I felt like he was trying to get it right with John. I feel like Jorah is kind of doing the same thing, where he's trying to get it right with Danny. It's like you know what I. It's like, I've had this wife, you know, everything fell apart, things didn't work out. Now Jorah is in a position where it's like, well, maybe I can get it right this time. Maybe I can make up for the first time by doing it right with Danny. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, and you gotta, and with, with, with Jorah, or with Gior as well, uh, with Commander Mormont, there's, there's also the sense of maybe a little bit of guilt. Because he, unlike most uh, lords... They didn't, he didn't die and then pass this, the title to his son. He abdicated, which is unusual. He took the black as a lord, and which allowed Jorah to take become lord of Bear Island. So he sort of gave Jorah lordship, which sort of reflects on him. This is the guy that ended up being a traitor to the north. So that reflects on Jorah, on Gior a bit himself. I'm sure being a, a noble, honorable guy, he feels that, staying a little himself. So... I got to agree that his trying to get it right with John, trying to sort of, as we can, we all can tell that he's, as Sam pointed out, that he's grooming him to take over one day. Um, so yeah, that totally makes sense. If he if he can if he could sort of mentor this kid into being the future Lord Commander or at least a good leader for the Night's Watch, if not the leader, 
I think he could, you know, event, he could probably die happy. Uh, it's not his son, but it's, you know, he did something good. He, he imparted what he, his knowledge to a younger man. He could pass on his legacy, things like that. So, Right. And, uh, and, and that also, like, bringing that back to, uh, to Jorah, though, since, since you mentioned that, um, I also find that interesting because it's like Jorah received the lordship, you know, but his dad's still alive. And um, if you if you recall the scene when he's talking to uh, one of Danny's uh, blood riders in, in um, season one, uh, uh, the conversation right before they find out that she's pregnant, right. and he he um, when the blood rider was telling him about how his dad was the blood rider for um, for the previous call and stuff like that, and then Jorah started talking about his own dad. You kind of get the sense like even though Jorah's like Jorah's ashamed of what he's done. But now, since you brought up the thing about how he became a lord um, without, you know, inheriting it after death, then it also becomes sort of this thing. It's like, well, I shamed my dad, but at the same time, I don't feel like I did anything to earn the lordship in the first place. You know, it's, it's, it's not like my dad died in a great battle and I had to pick up the mantle. It was passed on to me and I never feel those shoes. So in that sense, so in that sense, it's not only about redeeming himself after uh, all the things he's done. It's also trying to fulfill a role that he probably felt like he never did from beginning. Mm. I agree. I agree. And uh, yeah, the redeemable quality that uh, he's trying to he's trying to achieve is is definitely a factor. I think, and and he does seem like he's trying too hard. Into into like you know, filling the shoes that he thinks need to be filled. I, I I'm not sure that's even making sense, but you know he, he's trying really hard to say yes, I'm worthy of filling this role for you, Danny, because he's not obviously going to be doing it at home. Um, Z, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. I hadn't really considered it so much in that regard, but it rings true when I hear it. Um, I do think that there's another interesting element here uh, that is kind of a wild card, and that's when when he uh, Jorah sort of semi ominously points out that Daenerys looks a lot like his, the, his former wife that he would do anything for. You kind of realize there's a different there's an element of not just loyalty going on, but that, that Jorah is, has feelings for Danny, And that, of course, changes him. You can't really be a father figure to somebody that you're in love with. That kind of changes the dynamic a bit. So it's uh, I feel like that hasn't been fully explored yet, but it's something that's building up. And, uh, you know, it's that, that's obviously going to be a, an important plot point uh, because... You know, how's Danny going to react to that? <laughs> what is she going to think to this? How does she view him? You know, what is what is her, what is how is she going to how is she going to react to that? You know, she's she going to feel dirty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's going to dislike that. Is she going to? I mean, in the, it's, it's one thing that's funny about the the books is that he's like as always. This is of course a surprise to nobody. When you go from a book to a show, a lot of times you go from. Are you up the handsome factor on the character? Jorah's not supposed to be handsome from the mm. from the books, which isn't a problem. I'm not complaining. But in the books, he's a big, ugly, hairy man. He's supposed to look kind of like a bear. He's supposed to be uh, kind of emblematic of their sigil. House, the Mormon sigil is the bear. 
and he's supposed to be kind of look look kind of look like one. He's supposed to be bald and huge and hairy, like he's supposed to have almost a pelt on his back. Like I don't know, not so. With that in mind, you wouldn't think Danny would fall for that, but <laughs> who knows? So I've always thought that was kind of interesting. So we'll have to see where that's going to head. All right. So who's next up on the list? Well, let's uh, let's let's jump to the Cleganes. We can kind of bounce back and forth between North and. And, and west, and then jump into the south for a bit later. When we talk about the Tarleys. Let's do the Cleganes. They're a fun one, I think. Uh, there's not a lot of history on the Cleganes. I'll, I'll just rattle through that real quick. They are only a couple generations old. Tywin's father, so Jamie and Tyrion and Cersei's grandfather, Titos, who, by the way, nothing like Tywin, a complete weak-willed oh, yeah. guy that people laughed about. He's the reason, he's half the reason, if not more, the reason Tywin is the way he is. He's kind of Tywin was embarrassed by his father. He set out to be anything but like that. Basically, <laughs> be the opposite. But uh, what happened was Lord Titos out one day hunting and found himself in a very near-death situation with, ironically, a mountain lion. Uh, so yes, the lion, Lord Lion Lannister, almost killed by a mountain lion himself. That would have been truly ironic. But Lord uh, Lord Titos is not a fan of irony, so he was not killed by this mountain lion. He was saved by his kennel master, a presumably very large man, given the size of his sons, uh, who lost a leg and three dogs, uh, saving Lord Titos from this mountain lion. As a reward, because the Lannister always pays his debts, uh, this kennel master, who I suppose his name was Clegane of some kind, was able to form House Clegane. He was given a keep and some lands and some servants. This keep is apparently large enough to have a tower house. That's about all we know. But at one point in the not-too-distant past, this father died mysteriously in a hunting accident. Now, hunting accidents are all too common and anytime you hear hunting accident in a setting like this, you have to put at hunting accident in quotes because it could have been like a Robert Baratheon type scenario where there was something else involved. Uh, and anyway, when that hunting trip was over, uh, Poplar Cagain was no longer in charge, but uh, Sir Gregor was in charge. Also, there was a sister, and she kind of died under mysterious circumstances. And Gregor himself has had two wives that have died. Uh, under mysterious circumstances. And apparently servants disappear frequently from, from Clegane Keep. So it's not a, the, day, the day Sir Gregor took over the Keep, Thandor left. He didn't want to be around. Uh, so Gregor is one of those characters that's, even though he seems two-dimensional, he seems like one of those few characters that doesn't really have a good and evil side. He's not really very gray. He's just a brutal killer, right? He's just a guy that exalts in killing. He's not very bright. He has no qualms of torturing or being cruel. But even he has another side to him. Even the most seemingly two-dimensional character in George R. R. Martin's world has another side to him. It's a very hard-to-notice, slender side. I'm not even sure if it's presented very well in the show. But the man apparently has blindingly bad migraine headaches. And... It's been said plenty of times in psychology circles and in life, just from observing human beings, that the people that inflict pain the most on other people are the ones who are often in pain themselves. And I think that's part of him. I think he is kind of just a brutal guy in general. 
But he also has these massive pain, massive headaches that cause him to have brutal pain and probably turn him into a drug addict. He supposedly drinks milk of the poppy like lesser men quaff ale or wine. Wow. So he's an eight, a near eight-foot-tall guy that drinks glasses of what's basically morphine or heroin, the equivalent of it. I mean, poppy, milk of the poppy, it's a white substance. Heroin is white. I mean, this, milk of the poppy is morphine or heroin. It's the West Russia equivalent of it. Make no mistake. So this guy's basically hooked on it. Guys who are opiate addicts have extreme problems with, you know, getting along and, and with being, you know, with rage and issues like that. And it's, imagine that in a society where people don't understand drug addiction. So this guy just inflicts pain on everyone around him and seemingly derives pleasure from it. But without getting too deep into the psychology of this character, he's... He's known for uh, killing the, uh, a crucial member of the royal family during Robert's Rebellion. He killed Elia of Dorne, who was the wife of Rhaegar Targaryen, the crown prince, the son of the Mad King, who was not mad himself. Uh, kind of well thought of by a lot of people. So, Gregor presents himself as this, you know, monster. Uh, he's, he's one of the closest things we have to true evil. Uh, what do you guys think of him as a character? Is that, is that how you see him? Do you see him as a sort of a brutish monster, or do you think there's more to it? Larry, why don't you go first? I just thought I just thought he was um, a hired hand, uh, much in the same fashion of the Hound. The first time the Hound's introduced, it's uh, Gregor's the the guy that Tywin goes to, and it's like, okay, I need a job. I need this done like right now. I need it. Um, not it doesn't have to necessarily be clean, but I need it done quick. You're the guy I go to. Um, to be honest, I never thought of uh, Gregor as um, from a um, psychological standpoint or from an ethical standpoint. You know, I, I didn't think that he was the type of character because um, I didn't know. Once again, it didn't concern me whether or not he was good or evil, Fifty Shades of Grey, anything like that. He's just here's the money. Go take care of this guy for me. Okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> the same the same thing like uh like the hound. Once again, like well, we know more about the hound because we see more of him, but the hound's the exact same way. He's like, hey, go take care of this guy for me. It's like I'll be right back. <laughs> so yeah. um I, I see it sort of that way too, except I think to me the one one crucial difference is the hound is more this is the way it is. He's he sees the world as cruel. Whereas Gregor is where, where sort of like Sandor sort of sees the world as it is. He says the world is cruel, and I'm just fitting in. Whereas Gregor doesn't really have a worldview. He is just a cruel guy. He just happens to fit in. <laughs> he just happens to be a badass, and he gets to do what he wants because he's about eight feet tall. And and who's going to stop him? Um, I like your pre kind of pre presenting him as sort of the cleaner, sort of the go-to kind of reaver type. Tywin needs some some nastiness done. Who's you, the first guy he thinks of is, is Sir Gregor. Tyrion gets seized by Catelyn, so he wants to do some damage to the Riverlands. Who better? Who better than this guy? He's feared and, and rightly so. We see, how, we see how nasty he is in that joust with Sir Loras. He almost kills a guy in cold blood in the middle, in, in clear sight of the king and all his court. I mean, he's got super issues. Um, but his brother... I think his brother is a bit more compelling as a character. There's, we know more about him. We know why he is the way he is. And he's got this sort of interesting, um, rebellious attitude towards... And he's right. I think he's right. His attitude towards knights. It's funny because 
he's he's all you know, fuck your sirs. I'm not a sir. Don't call me a knight. Knights are you know knights are false. And of course, why is he like that? Probably because his he grew up with a guy who's the worst example of what a knight should be. <laughs> Pretty much, exactly. you can't really get worse than Sir Gregor. I mean, he's the worst possible example of what a knight should be. You take he meets up with Sansa, whose idea of a knight is the best possible. She's he thinks about. Knights from songs, and Gregor's idea of a knight is his brother. So those two worlds clash together, and it's no wonder uh, Gregor or Sansa is met with such disgust when Sandor hears uh, the way she talks about such things. She's like, are you kidding me? The real world is a lot worse than what you're saying, girl. They're, they're like opposites. They're, they're, they're polar opposites in that. Sandor has this very harsh, realistic view of what the world is like, and Sansa has this dreamy head in the clouds kind of view, and their worlds collide, and it's like Beauty and the Beast, sort of, which is a great comparison, actually, because George actually wrote for that show, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. in the 80s. So I think that he may have even had that in mind when he designed these two characters. Um, I think that Sansa, uh, Sandor is extremely compelling in that regard. He's, he's uh, possibly the most angry character in the show, but he isn't... Uh, he doesn't let his rage control him so much. He doesn't go berserk. He focuses it all into being violent, and when he's able to wield his sword, he is completely vicious and unstoppable. Are you talking about Sandor or Gregor? Sandor. I think Sandor. Gregor is a brute all the time. <laughs> Gregor, yeah, I was say, Gregor is just evil. He's just yeah, he, he'll, he'll, he can, he'll, he'll go to... He'll turn to brutality over a drink, you know, no problem. Whereas Sandor is more of a, uh, you know, he'll he'll just yell and, and threaten, but he doesn't fight uh, for fun. He, he he does seem to sort of enjoy it, but it's not something that gives him pleasure, like his brother. He's not cruel, right? He he like, doesn't. Like he, need, he need he needs to get his uh, his adrenaline fixed, but he's not cruel. Like he yeah, like he, put it. he he'd rather have a fight. Then torture someone. Yeah. Yeah. He recognizes that violence is the way of the world. He says, look, the world is decided by steel. The people who are strongest rule. He has a very just conservative, hardcore view of the world. Just, look, this is how it is. The people with the swords and the people with power. If you can kill and fight, you'll survive. And that's it. He doesn't enjoy it. He just recognizes it for what it is and deals with it. And he has a disgust for people that don't see it that way. For people who put a spin on the world, who put a spin on knighthood and on being a lord. He has, he has a real disregard for even people like Eddard Stark, who, who think their own shit doesn't stink. I want to present you guys with a moral conundrum. It seems kind of straightforward that what he did with that butcher's boy of Arya was evil. He went and chased down this little boy and cut him in half. But consider the alternative. His job, he is employed by the king. He has to do what the king says, or he, he will be executed. L love it or leave it, whether that's good or wrong, good or evil, right or wrong, doesn't really matter. Who has time or, or leeway for good or evil or right or wrong when your own life is at stake constantly? Here's what happens if he captures that boy. Let's say he captures that boy instead of kills him. Brings him back to who exactly? Joffrey. <laughs> What's going to happen to this little kid if he gets turned over to Joffrey? Do you really think what Sandor did is worse than what would have happened to this kid? I suppose you could say that what if he just lets the kid go and tries to let him, you know, that's the other side of it. He could, he could have not captured the kid and just said, hey, I, I, I never found him. He got away. 
So it's kind of a moral conundrum in my mind. I don't, I don't think it's a, a strictly moral conundrum. I think he definitely did a bad thing. But I think there's something to be said for the fact that the kid would have been in worse shape had he turned him over to Joffrey. I think so. Yep. <laughs> is it yeah. is it is it just that simple, or is there is it is it does it go deeper? Is it, is it, well, the, well, I mean, uh, the thing about um, Sandor that I like, though, um, especially when you talk about like the uh, the end of season two with uh, with Blackwater, you know, uh, episode nine. Oh. Like, uh, I, I really like the thing is, I really liked when Sandor decided to leave the fight. Because to me, I think that was finally like his whole, um, you know, the, the, the true mark and the true test of his character. That was it coming through. Think about it. Sandor, for all intent and purpose, right? His character is based around Gregor. Growing up with Gregor, what Gregor did to him, his whole view on the world is based off of Gregor. And then you have a man who grows up like that, and then what happens? When he becomes an adult, he's thrown straight into servitude, just like you said, where it's like he's at the whim, he's at the behest of those in power. Yep. And he's told, just like you said, it's either you do what I want or you get executed or killed or punished. And so this only reinforces that negative outlook that he already has on the world. This is only reinforcing what he's already grown up to believe. So then finally, he finally makes a choice on his own during Blackwater. He's like, you know what? I'm done. It's like, I've shed enough blood. It's like, I've been fighting for you when clearly you aren't worth my, you aren't worth my sword. And you are not a ruler worth your own sword. You won't even get out on the battlefield and fight alongside me. So why am I serving you? For what? And, I, and, and see, and that's the thing, I think, you know, the uh, when Sandor said that, of course, you know, he's pretty much proclaiming, like, why he's going to leave. But to me, when Sandor was making that speech, all I heard was, I'm not my brother. I am not my brother. Yeah. And when he walks yeah. off, I'm like, yes, finally. <laughs> he said it. Yeah. No, no, it took something psychologically traumatic for him. Like, obviously, he's a guy... To, to be clear, for, for anyone who doesn't remember the history of how he got his face burned, his brother held his face down in the coals when he caught him playing with a toy that belonged to Gregor. But Gregor had discarded this toy. He didn't care. He was a squire already. So it was basically just a power play, a very cruel power play from a young older brother to a younger brother. And it's basically... That's I, 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 I had a joke lined up for it, but it's probably not going to go over very well now, but... Basically, you know, he caught, you know, Sandor playing with an action figure from, you know, Robert's Rebellion or something. <laughs> and so the fire, he, so he is afraid of fire. He's, he, this is, you know, when you're a child and something bad happens to you, you can't reason through it because you haven't fully developed your logic circuits as a, as a person, as a human being. This is why childhood trauma affects adults so much because you, as a child, you didn't have the emotional circuitry to handle it. Sandor Clegane, as a six- or eight-year-old boy, couldn't handle this. He just has these, all the time, most likely has these memories of being burned, of this horrible pain, of being disfigured for the rest of his life because of something his brother did, something that, someone, somebody that no one could control. The fact that his brother was just so huge, and it, it, it said that it took three grown men pulling Gregor off of Sandor. It, 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 this is how vicious Gregor was to Sandor. So, the fire burning everywhere 
brought back all these memories and it probably like larry said it it, it helped him it drove him towards the snapping and saying look i've had enough i'm not like like you said i'm not my brother i'm not following these footsteps i'm not a knight i'm none of these things you know, screw you guys. I'm this is this is bull. I'm, I'm out of here. Exactly. I'm, I'm done. Like, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> ironically, kind of like a phoenix rising from the ashes, sort of. But like he, he was actually burned. It, it, it kind of fits pretty well. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens for him. Obviously, you know, we some of us have read the book, so we sort of know. But we're obviously we're not going to talk about that. But it's it's a great moment, regardless of what happens later. He, it's it's like a, it's a new kind of a new arc for for a character who's kind of a minor character, setting off on a a whole new direction. It's, it makes well, him feel fine. like a major character. Um, and one interesting little tidbit. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this. There's been some release. They've released some deleted scenes. Um, the the season two Blu-ray, you know, has been out for a short while, and there's some deleted scenes that have been going around. There's a deleted scene between Sansa and Sansa that Sansa, <laughs> Sansa. Uh, who, so I, I highly encourage you all to check that out if, if you find it online or if you have the, the Blu-rays. It's a, it's a good scene that I kind of wish had been in the show. Most of those deleted scenes, I, I don't have a problem with them being deleted, but that one I thought was pretty good. Um, it sh kind of shows those two. Once again, I pointed out earlier how those two are sort of uh, polar opposites as far as their view on the world. And you, you almost wonder if, if they get to spend more time together, maybe they will, maybe they won't, will they both start to sort of come towards the middle on each other's views? Will they, will they meet in the middle? Will they're, will they're very, his views are very black and white, and so are hers. And will they meet in the middle of something? Will, will he sort of show her a little reality? So look, I mean, she's sort of learning it on her own, being around Cersei and Joffrey and thinking things landing through all this crap. Uh, and will he learn that maybe things aren't quite that harsh? Maybe there is good in the world. Maybe there are people you can care about. Maybe there's a little balance between the two. Yeah, and you hope for that. You know, Sandor is one of those guys that some people are like, how can you possibly care about that character? How can you like him? You know, and it's like, well, I don't like him. Like, I wouldn't want him to be my friend if I knew him in real life, but he's a compelling character. He's very interesting and well-written, well-constructed character, so I do care what happens to him. Not in a like, oh, I hope he, you know, gets married and you know settles down and has a happy life not that kind of thing no. i'm curious what happens to him and i'm happy the narrative you know includes a a secondary character that's so thoroughly developed let's get married and have a baby <laughs> so uh so let's move on i think that is i think we covered those guys pretty well yeah i think so uh so let's next move on to house paint uh, there's another. This is another house where there's not a lot of background on them. They're probably older than House Clegane, which we said is only a couple generations old. Um, now, these guys go all the way back. I, I believe they're very old, but I don't know how old. We don't. We don't have uh, specific data on that. That might be something that we get data on when the World of Ice and Fire book comes out later this year. But for now, that's just kind of an open uh, question mark. I I, I, I guess I, I think they go way back, um, maybe not all the way to the first men, but maybe almost as back as far as the Andals. Yeah, um, yeah. They seem to have been around for a while. They've been Bannermen to the to the Lannisters for a while, and of course they've had to have a reasonably close relationship with House Lannister. We know that Illyn Payne was captain of Tywin's guard. During Tywin's tenure as Hand, which was a very lengthy tenure, he was Hand for 20 years, and 
when Ilian lost his tongue because one day he was overheard saying that it was truly Lord Tywin who ran the realm and not Ares, which is kind of true, but not a smart thing to say uh, in the court of a guy who is, you know, not all there and paranoid and sort of had this relationship, kind of jealous relationship with Tywin. Yeah, he, he was a mad king. He was very jealous of Lord Tywin at the time. And, uh, I mean, the fact that Tywin was running his kingdom made him very, very much so jealous of the fact that, okay, I should be doing this. Why is this guy doing this kind of thing? And it, it, it's, it just ties in very well. And, unfortunately, Sir Ilan Payne caught the brunt of that one. <laughs> no more tongue for you. He won't be saying that again. And we know we know from detail from the book as well that he doesn't know how to read or write, so he is pretty much incommunicado. That guy can't really relate anything to anyone. <laughs> he just looks like head, you know, head gestures, and yeah, he can nod and, and shake his head. That's about it. He's yeah. so. And the actor they chose to portray him, ooh, that guy is kind of scary, huh? He's got that hollow looking eyes. Uh, and on a sad note, unfortunately, that actor, if y'all don't know, he has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So oh he is, that's, just, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's obviously very unfortunate. The actor has a very positive um, view on the whole thing. He's, he's, he's gone on some tours. He's been talking about the, uh, you know, how he's dealing with it. And he's, oh, this guy, he seems like a, a role model. He seems like he'll, he'll be good for other people that have cancer to hear what he has to say. He's, Got a very positive outlook on it. So, but uh, anyway, the character himself—he's—he uh, he seems like he fills the role pretty well of King's Justice. He's intimidating. Uh, He—he's this kind of hollow shell of a man that's just there to to kill. <laughs> and so I see him bring me his head. Yeah. So that's one of, the, one of the big, important, pivotal moments of the show, and. Uh, there's maybe not a lot to say about him as a character, but maybe him as a as a as an archetype. You know, how, what do you guys think of him as the way George has written him as a character? Uh, that, that role, it's it's to me, it's it's I don't know, it's it's not too far from what you might expect from that kind of character, but it's a little more. He's a little more in the forefront, I guess. Hard to say, I suppose. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, um, I. Honestly, I think it's just, uh, he's just a difficult character to read. I mean, speaking strictly from the show, he's just a difficult character to read. Why? Because he can't speak. We can't get inside his head. We don't know what's going on with that character. Everything you know about him is told, it's told to someone else from another person. So, um... Yeah, is he getting yeah, angry? Think, yeah, what's he thinking? Yeah, I don't know. Well, what, what what I'm saying is, I think, honestly, I I think he's I think he's one of the minor characters that, in regards to how he's adapted in the series, actually gets the shaft because there isn't enough conversation about him, and everything you know is given to you secondhand or even thirdhand. You know how? Because uh, I think even Sandor was talking to Sansa, uh, mentioned him like the first time she saw him. And then he made a comment about him. You know, that Sandor perpetuating what he thinks of him onto Sansa. And so we learn about him from what he's telling us. So, um, so honestly, I, I just think that he is that type of character to where he, 
he is just an archetype at face value. And it is so much more difficult for you to seek out that information about him because it's not given to us. And it's good. It's a good point because by having him be a little less fleshed out, sort of by necessity, he provides a contrast to show how, how just how well fleshed out some of the other secondary characters are. He's, he's like a, he's almost a straight man. He's the straight man role. He's like, oh, this is the, this is one of those few sort of two-dimensional characters that George throws in there. Sort of like Dolores Ed, a good example, the, the jokester kind of, you know, the, the nice watchman. Who just I love Dolores Ed. Yeah, I love Dolores Ed too, but he's, he's another good example of someone that's not, he's one of the very few unfleshed out two-dimensional characters. He's there kind of for, whereas Dolores Ed is there kind of for comic relief. Ellen Payne is sort of the shadowy sort of reaper man, sort of the, the sh- hanging out in the background reminding everybody of how dark things are. And, I, I, he's I, the muscle. Yeah, I, little I, muscle. I think, yeah, I, I really do think Ilan is he, he's a tragic character, in my opinion. Um, he said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and now for the rest of his life, he has to suffer for a comment. And that's kind of harsh. That's pretty harsh. Hey, same thing happened to the, uh, the musician in season one. Oh, he made a comment about Robert. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. What's it, what was his name? I should know this. Uh, it's easy. You probably know his name. The the musician. Yeah. Um, the Troubadour. Got out by Sterling. Yeah. Forget. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Well, we um, never saw him again. No, we didn't. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. He he was was Nasty. Okay, so let's talk. About, let's talk about Podrick. There's another character. There's not a whole lot to say about him. He's he's um hasn't been super fleshed out. He's kind of interesting. He's a character that. He's a cousin of Sir Ilian. Uh, he was assigned to Tyrion as a squire, largely due to the relationship those houses have, as the Paynes are bannermen to the Lannisters. Uh, so that's a natural fit there. You would have the, the top Lannisters getting squires and pages from the other houses that are directly below them. And Podrick is, interestingly, um, he has a speech issue too. He's a stutterer. He looks down. He's very nervous. Um, but he also seems very capable, despite this. He's, he's sort of a he's sort of a mix. He's one of these young kids that has a confidence problem, but actually has a decent bit of talent. Uh, he's good at what he does, but he can't really tell. <laughs> so, so uh, the, the one thing I wanted to add is, uh, and I don't think this would be spoilery because it did not happen in this show, but it did happen in the book, and I think it was important that Podrick actually saved Tyrion's life at the Battle of Blackwater. That was in the show. Oh, he, he, okay. Yeah, that was yeah, in the show, yeah. When Tyrion, uh, it was, I think it happened right after, um, either right before or right after Tyrion got uh, slashed in the face. Yeah. Yeah, that was in the show. Yeah, that's right. Sir more, Andy Moore tries to kill him, and, and the, only, the only difference in the book, I suppose, is that it happens on a ship instead of on the ground, which is really no, no big deal. So Sir Mandon Moore goes tumbling into the water instead of the spear going into it. He drowns instead of getting speared in the back. Small, I mean, big deal. That's, that's the same thing, really. Yeah, so, can... of course, you wonder that creates another. Obviously, that creates another plot. Like, who, who, how did it? You know, which who set this Kingsguard on Tyrion? But that's you know, that's that's a that's a question for another time. I have to figure it We all do. Yeah. Well, no, I have one theory. <laughs> one person. Hear it. And she knows who she is. is. Oh, okay. You, well, that's uh, we, <laughs> it's a good guess. I like that. I was going to ask who your who your guess is, but but you, when you say she, I think that gives it away. <laughs> so, 
he is gonna. So he's an important because he is. You know, he's a he's a. a Tyrion has somebody that Tyrion's a good guy, a decent guy. He doesn't use people nearly. I mean, he does, but not nearly to the degree that other lords do. And yeah. he tends to use people more. Like he rewards people that will do well for him, and he'll use people that he thinks are kind of scummy. Notice how he manipulated the other counselors, Varys and Littlefinger, and Cassell, kind of to figure out who he could trust. He wasn't afraid to manipulate those guys because he knows those guys are already manipulators and they're using people all the time. But someone like Podrick, his squire, who's an innocent, that's somebody that Tyrion treats well, um, regardless of who they are, where they came from. Tyrion is, gonna, is more of a judge people based on merit and not based on who their, their parents are uh, or who their family is or, or who they're related to. Mm -hmm. So that's cool to me because Tyrion paired up with this, this kind of awkward kid who has some potential. They're kind of opposites. To me, Podrick is a kid with talent who has who lacks confidence and charisma. Where Tyrion has lots of confidence, lots of charisma, not you know not physical charisma, but he has a lot of you know charisma through his ability to talk, and he's got the gift of gab and the ability to, to manipulate people. So he and he has none of the you know physical gifts. So the two of them are uh, that's an interesting little pair they've got. You've got one guy who's got all the you know got the skills but no confidence. I mean, he's too young to have you know to be a full fledged you know warrior or whatever. But he took out a king's guard. He was a, wasn't afraid to do that. You know, so he's uh, he's got some potential there. Um, so with, with Tyrion, Tyrion's a perfect mentor for someone like that who has. You know, lacks confidence. Tyrion's like, look, look at me. What do I have besides, well, besides you know being part of the richest family uh, in the kingdom? <laughs> There's that. But <laughs> still, Tyrion, Tyrion can teach him a lot. I like, I, I like the setup of these two characters being put together. It's another little, very clever, subtle thing that George has done that it's kind of easy to miss. You realize that 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 uh, that split and how well they fit together. And did you guys catch that? Was that you know, is that something that that's that's too subtle, or did, was that a uh, Something you noticed, or is, is Podrick just too minor that that's just that just slid by, or maybe you had some other observations? Well, um, my my thoughts on Podrick were just that um, he was, for I guess for lack of a better term, he was like the uh, the perfect personal assistant. You know, he he's quiet, he doesn't you know no back talk. He's very competent, um, and so it's like he's like that guy that Tyrion likes to have around because he he does he fills in the spots where everybody else is already taking care of things you know like Tyrion doesn't need to you know just hang out you know like like when Tyrion needs to be you know feel manly he doesn't really need to be with Podrick you know he got that with Bron he and then of course you know with uh Shay you know all that yeah. jazz uh, <laughs> Podrick, Podrick doesn't uh, in, uh, doesn't fulfill his into his um intellectual stimulation because he has that with Lord Varys, or he right. he'll get that from Cersei or something like that. So what Podrick does is he he he's um uh, he's the Robin to his Batman, but he doesn't backtalk. He's the Speedy <laughs> to his Green Arrow. You know, he's like he's the guy. It's like some when Tyrion needs something done, it's already done, but he didn't even ask for it yet, and he's like, oh, thank you. Okay, go along. And you know what else? I like that th those examples you gave because it also shows that uh, how loyal he is. I think Podrick's probably the guy he can most trust out of all the people. Like he can't he he, he can trust Bronn as much. Family. As, uh, sorry, yeah, <laughs> there's he a family connection. The fact that Podrick's a young boy, he really seems to like Tyrion. He's like 
he really takes his job seriously. He's like, I'm your squire. I should be with you. You know, he's this is one of the few times that he actually, like, shows his confidence. He's like, I'm... So I think Tyrion really no, recognizes that he's got a trustworthy kid there, and I think that's yeah. going to be good for their, their, their bond. I'm, I'm going to say right out right now, Podrick is a badass. <laughs> I'm sorry, but he is. I mean, he stood up to a king's guard. This is yeah. a guy who is, like, you know, sworn to death to defend his king at any cost and do whatever is commanded of him. And he stood up to this guy and said, eh. <laughs> and you got to think that a lot of other kids that may have been assigned to Tyrion may not have been happy about that, because Tyrion's not exactly well regarded. Some people were like, no, oh, i got to be squire to him? Damn it, you know, that's no good. They might not be so upset to see their, you know, the guy they're squiring for get killed, because maybe they get to be squire to somebody else instead of Tyrion. Somebody a little taller. He up for Tyrion, but yeah, he, he, not only did he not you know, back off, but he actually tried, went on and took on a Kingsguard, albeit, you know, stabbed him in the back, but still, you know, if he hadn't killed him on that thrust, he was, you know, the Kingsguard's going to turn around, and then they're coming face to face. Larry, right. Larry, you look like you want to say something. Hmm? You look like you want to say something. Yeah, right. And see, uh, the, and that's the one thing about Podrick that I'm hoping, um, when you talk about, like, his position as the squire, you know, his assignment his thoughts of uh, serving Tyrion and this. I hope Podrick is the type of guy where it's like, you know what? This is the guy I was assigned to. So let me do the best job I can do for him because my success rides on him getting where he needs to go. I hope he's not the type where it's at the first opportunity. It's like, hey, we need something to happen to Tyrion. Okay, uh, well, what do you need me to do? Okay, go do this and we'll make you a knight. Sure thing. I hope he's not that type of guy. Yeah. I hope he's. I hope he's the one that's like, no, you guys assigned me to Tyrion, so I'm going to earn my knighthood. Yeah. But <laughs> I, like I mean, we because we've seen that happen before. That happened with uh, Jamie. Well, uh, oh, yeah. Did that? Yeah, it, it kind of happened with Jamie. But I'm thinking of the uh, the knight from season one. The um. Oh, uh, so Hugh. Yes. Yeah. So he, yes. Yeah. <laughs> look, so at what, look, look how quickly that went to his head. I, I don't imagine that if Hogwarts would, would, would be thumbing his nose down at, at envoys sent from the hand of the king. Let me <laughs> say that we, this is a this is a podcast on minor houses, and he didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a minor house. <laughs> Actually, uh, they don't. You know, there, there's something I've noticed just from season one alone. They don't really breed them pretty strong in the veil. <laughs> they go down pretty easy. <laughs> I was I, I was just rewatching I was just rewatching uh um the uh, the trial by combat that when Bron uh oh yes I, I watched that last night. That and is I'm my like, favorite episode of all time. That dude didn't stand a chance. Bron is. Ron is no ordinary fighter, though, is he? We, we were thinking about trying to fit him in this this con this, this podcast today, but he's not from a house. He doesn't have there's no one to pair him up with. I, I was trying to think of another sellsword we could pair him up with, but I, I could. The, the best example of another sellsword isn't really part of the story yet. He'll he'll be around soon. And maybe yeah, well, well, maybe we'll do a sellsword uh, episode later. But yeah, and there's a few more of them on the scene that'll fit. So anyway, well, let's move on from uh, the pains, unless you all have anything more you want to say about them. Wishing it. Let's let's talk about House Cassell. Now, the name House Cassell, a lot of people are like, who? The name House Cassell doesn't get thrown out there very often, but they're really important, and I know you guys know who these characters are. 
we talked about, I introduced him at the beginning briefly. Jory is very important to Ned. He's the guy that when, in the, one of the very first scenes of the show, when they're sitting there with the direwolves, they find the direwolves, their first instinct is Ned's first instinct, as well as Roderick, who is Jory's uncle. Uh, his first instinct is to kill the wolves. But, but Jory has a different view. He suggests that the wolves are an omen sent by the old gods, which Ned, being a very devout, uh, you know, and a very, you know, uh, believer in the old gods, it is not a guy to thumb his nose up at such things. Immediately, he kind of took his, took, that notion took him aback, and he couldn't ignore it once it was presented to him, and, and Roderick kind of had the same attitude. He didn't have anything more to say after that. But just want to point out a few things that Jory does. Just so you can see how much the Stark household relied on him and his uncle. For example, Captain of Ned's household guard. Uh, it's unclear whether that's what he what, what role that's the role he had prior to leaving Winterfell, but I believe it was. Certainly, once they left Winterfell to head south, that was his job. He was crucial in bringing in, in hunting Arya when she went missing. He was. Ned's right-hand man in King's Landing, he was the man sent to send the message to Robert. This is the scene that we saw when, uh, when Jory speaks with Jamie. Uh, and at first, Jamie doesn't even want to talk to him. Uh, but then he realizes that they've got something in common. Jory points out that they were in combat together at the Siege of Pike. And then Jamie has a moment of camaraderie with the man, but then he kind of snaps back because he's pissed off about the fact that he's guarding a man who's cheating on his sister. <laughs> so... Uh, it puts him in a bad mood. So, but then also Jory is the man sent to the brothel. He's also the man sent to treat with Sir Hugh. I mean, this guy, Ned relies on him for so much. And then you see him just not even flinch when he's surrounded by enemies. And Jamie Lannister, who has a reputation for being one of the best fighters in all of Westeros, he doesn't even flinch. When, he, when Jamie threatens Ned, he's like, Threaten him again, and we're fighting. And that's this is a twenty on three, basically. Yeah. Something like that. He's he's like this is a brave man, and you can see why Ned was able to rely on him. So it makes it very sad when he's killed, uh, because he's painted as this kind of important right hand man, this sort of companion, and he's just boom, he's just dead in a second, uh, very suddenly. And there's not much of a fight there. It's like oh, they're gonna have a fight? No. Jamie's just going to kill him really quickly. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> so let's, uh, so, so talk about Jory. What were your thoughts on him? Did, did you, did, did it occur to you guys? Did you notice how important he was? Did that, did, did you feel his loss? Like, like I did. <laughs> um, well, like I, like I knew Jory was pretty much, you know, pretty much Ned's like right hand man, which is why when he died, I immediately thought it's like, Oh crap, we're going to lose. <laughs> it's like oh man we're gonna lose this which is why i was surprised when when ned actually survived that that engagement in the outside the brothel i was like everybody everybody else was gone and then and the thing was it's uh i also think that when you when you think when you go back to that uh that engagement like after what had happened i mean just the opening scene of the next episode when Ned's waking up in the bed and, you know, uh, Robert and Cersei are hovering over him, I think the injury that Ned suffered is almost analogous to what happened in that engagement. He lost all of his best men. He was so vulnerable at that point. Yeah. 
He was. That's a really good analogy. It's like having it, the good. analogy of losing his right-hand man is like losing his leg. It's like exactly. now like, it, it crippled him. You're, that's, a, that's a brilliant, yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting to point out how much Ned relied on Jory's father. Jory's father, Martin, this isn't really mentioned in the show very much, but it's a good, interesting piece of data. And I know they tried to include this because they tried to figure out a way to have Ned have more dreams about the past as when he's in this in the jail cell, in the black cells, rather. He's, he sh they, they initially tried to write it so that he had some memories, which are a big part of the book. They couldn't figure out how to film it. They thought it was too awkward, so they just disbanded it. But Martin Cassell, who was Roderick's brother and Jory's father, was one of Ned's chief companions during the war, and, and Martin died at the Tower of Joy fighting against three oh. kings. It always he comes back to the Tower of Joy. It all comes back to the Tower of Joy again. So uh, th that's that's thing we'll talk about it another time. We keep talking. We keep saying how we're going to talk about that in another show, and we just haven't gotten there yet. But eventually we will. Anyway, so that just shows the Cassells have been relied on by the Starks for a lot. They are hugely important. So when we talk about Roderick, let's talk about Roderick. Look how important he is. Mm -hmm. He he assists Catelyn when she goes south. She's the guy that he, he they're insistent that she not go alone. So they send the most dependable guy. He was their master at arms. He trained John and Rob, and possibly he trained Eddard. He's an old enough guy that he may have been the master at arms before that. Yeah, and Theon too. Yeah, he also trained Theon, which you know that's going to you know be a big kick in the balls when when. When Theon's the one to execute Roderick, it's a very, very cruel, tragic scene. Uh, Roderick, but before we get to that, Roderick is the man is is crucial in that fight uh, outside before they get to the Vale when they're set upon by uh, the raiders there, and, and Roderick kills their leader. It takes a couple of very severe wounds. This is, of course, why he is not able to accompany Catelyn further. Uh, Catelyn then appoints him Castellan and sends him back to Winterfell. Where he performs admirably, he does a great job. All these problems pop up while Catelyn is south and Rob is south. There's problems with the bastard of Bolton doing stuff. There's problems with um, the, of course, the Ironborn coming, and he's able to handle all these problems. He he goes south with men to to fight uh, Dagmar Cleftjaw, which was the you know the the the, the faint attack that Theon had discussed to draw them away from Winterfell. Um, now he fell for that trick. But he still did what he was supposed to do. He, was, he, he performed the job well, despite having been tricked. So between these guys, all these Cassells, you see, wow, they're really important. The Starks have been using these guys for, for a long time to be, be crucial. So it really shows, with, with those guys being dead, with Maester Lewin being dead, with all these other people being dead, it really shows, wow, the Starks have lost a lot of They've lost more than their right leg. It's almost like they've lost a right leg, a right arm, and some fingers off their left arm. You know, it's just... Maybe they lost an eye. <laughs> this, the metaphor can be taken a lot of different ways, but they're hurting. They're hurting badly. They've lost a lot of their support network. Yeah, we're yeah. losing this game. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like you said, I mean, uh, the very next episode, we really, really had a huge loss. Yeah, losing that's this game. Sure. Well, so so the, let's talk about the death of Roderick because I think that's a really, it's a really sad, pivotal moment. It shows Theon. Is, was raised by this guy, and sort of. Uh, Theon never had his, you know, he didn't really spend a lot of time around his own father. So Roderick had to have been some sort, some sort of a father figure-ish, maybe more of an uncle-type character. Guy that taught him how to fight. They went hunting together, you know, ate together. And then when Theon is confronted with his own culture demanding 
that he take a certain action, that this character, that Roderick has insulted him, and the only way that his culture can accept this is by taking revenge, is by executing him. Uh, he is confronted with either executing this guy by living up to this culture that he's desperately trying to fit into, he's desperately trying to prove himself as an ironborn, or just doing the right thing, being a decent guy, and murdering this guy that was, like, so important to his upbringing. It was basically like killing an uncle. Uh, and I just think that scene was just, you could see it in Theon's face. He just, he just you could tell that he's just torn. But he has to be macho. He can't not do what his culture demands of him. And what are your guys' thoughts on that? I think that's just a really, it's just a heart-wrenching scene, even though you don't, even though you think Theon's such a scumbag, you can kind of feel how he's being torn apart and how his actions are just hurting other people brutally. Yeah, Bran and, and, and Rickon are screaming and crying uh, right up to the moment. It was pretty brutal, I, I think. It was it was very brutal. It was just, uh, oh, man, I, I, I don't even know where to go with this. I mean, because it, it was just so awful in the fact that you know, this is a guy that he grew up with, and he's like trying to say, okay, I want to prove myself right in front of my family, in front of my, you know, countrymen who I really don't know. And now i got to kill this guy off. Um, Larry, what do you think? Well, I mean, uh, the whole, I mean, yeah, when Roger got killed, of course, you know, it was tragic and stuff like that. But as far as Theon, I mean, Theon is a very difficult character for me to sympathize with. And that's just because, to me, Theon is a weak individual. Theon wanted so bad to fit into a place where he clearly wasn't welcomed, whereas he he gave up the opportunity to forge a role for himself in a place where he felt like he wasn't accepted, and instead he threw that away to try and fit so hard in place where he clear, where he clearly wasn't wanted. The, uh, when, when you're talking about Theon, and I don't mean to take the conversation too much from Roderick, but just just what happened with Theon in Winterfell. Theon grew up there, and he he said he always felt like a prisoner, like nobody ever accepted him, right? Well, guess yeah. what happened? You finally get to the point where Rob's like, you're my brother in arms. You're my number two. Let's do this thing. You get the opportunity that you always wanted, and instead you throw it away to try and fit in with the family and with the culture that didn't want you back to begin with, that never wanted you. Mm-hmm. That gave you away. Weak is perfect. It's a perfect description saying that he's weak. That he just caved to the demands of his own culture. Exactly. It's, it's like if if Theon really was his own man, he would have told Balin, like, you know what? I'm 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 like at Rob's side and we're winning. I'm going over there. Because at least he wants me. You don't want me anymore, so I'm through with you. That's that that's what the if, if Theon was a strong individual, that's what he would have done. So the thing is, um, I felt like when he killed Roderick, it really was, I think that was the point where Theon was just pretty much throwing away everything that he already had. So you, you, you're, you're, you're pretty much, you know, wanting something that you can't have going back, uh, you know, going back to the Iron Islands. But in the pursuit of that, you throw away everything that you already did. So by the time when uh, when Winter when Winterfell is falling, and you know, and, and Theon's like, "Oh my God, what am I going to do?" He is literally in a perpetual purgatory because he doesn't have what he wanted, and he threw away what he already had. You you really have a great point there in the, in the fact that 
he did throw everything away when he cut off Sir Roger's head, and it was a brutal, brutal beheading. Yes, it was. Whatever. And anyways, so I mean, because this is the same person that also helped raise Rob and John and uh, Aria to a degree, and and Bran. I mean, this is somebody who's like very, very important to the family, and and the fact that he just did this in like a three three minute time frame. That says a lot about his character and how he's not going to be very well received by either <laughs> side. <clears throat> yeah, he, he's 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 he, he on one side he's the Iron Board don't accept him because he didn't grow up with them and he grew in fact grew up with their enemy so to speak. Uh, and the Starks now and the North won't accept him now because he's broken all these ancient laws of culture. Yeah. He, uh, Sort of a betrayed his his host, sort of a a, a, a contrivance, not a contrivance, but a similar. It, it's related to the whole guest right, you know, kinslaying issue, which he's not technically a kinslayer, nor did he technically violate guest right. But these these are very similar notions. Yeah, and I think the thing about Sir Roderick, the execution of Sir Roderick, is basically up to that point. There was a chance for him to be redeemed, sort of. I mean, he had invaded Winterfell, but he hadn't really done... He hadn't really killed anyone important. He hadn't really gone... He'd gone pretty far, but he hadn't really gone too far. Yeah. He had gone too uh, far. No, so that was pretty far. But he could that have back, was pretty far. He could have backed up, I think. But if that once he'd done that, I think it's too... I mean, you're, maybe, maybe you're right that he had already gone too far, but I think once he executes, like, a, an, an uncle figure... It's really just that's it. I mean, if he if there if he hadn't already gone too far, he certainly has now. Yeah, um, and arguably he already had gone too far. He already killed innocent people, obviously, and he had killed some Stark loyalists to that point. But nobody it's, he knew very well. I don't know. It, it's it's a it's a it's different. Yeah, and, and see, and, that, and that's the that's the thing about Theon that like really made me mad because I had so much high hopes for that character, especially if you go back to season one and you look. Who was the one who first brought up going to war? It was yeah. Theon. Theon was the one who told Rob, it's like, dude, they took your dad. We need to go to war. Theon was the one from Jump Street. So to see him get to that place, it was like, why? Like, oh, so much potential wasted. So much frustrating. It's funny that he was, you point out, we were just talking about how weak he is, yet he's the, he wasn't afraid to be like, yeah, let's go to war. And part of that is I think he wanted to prove himself. He, he wanted uh, an opportunity to, A, uh, besides just wanting to prove himself, he wanted he, he wanted to do the right thing. He realized what the correct reaction was for their society. He's like, look, he attacked, he took, they took your father. The only thing you can do is fight them. That, you have to answer blood for blood. But also, he wanted. I think deep down, he also wanted a chance to prove himself because he he never felt he truly belonged. So he wanted to show himself off. He's like, I'm a great archer. I can fight. You know, he was always gung ho about being, you know, Rob's back. You know, uh, Rob's right hand man. That's the first. I think that's the first line he has in the series. Maybe the second line is that scene there in the gods were talking about when Catelyn reveals that she thinks Bran was uh, thrown from the tower, and Theon. His first thing is, who would do that? And then Rob's talks about, we're, we're, you know, we, we have to fight them. Theon's like, and I'll be right beside you. You know, he's ready. Um, so, yeah, like you said, he comes off initially. His, our initial impression of Theon is is pretty good. I mean, the, he, he, on the other hand, he is the ready to kill the direwolves at the drop of a hat. That's, but 
you may not realize that was the same guy who did that because you know he's just a face at the beginning. He's, he, you're not there's no name given to that character, so it's easy to forget that moment. So he, he kind of comes off as like a, like he might be a decent guy at first, and then they start to you know go a little how he's maybe a little weak. His scenes with with Roz and all those other things, but so I think that you know we've talked about Theon a lot here. We're, we're, uh, we're talking about the Cassells, but it's interesting. This is, this is part of the point, though. The, the minor characters, part of what they do is they drive the major characters. They give us a reason to think about it. And let's talk, going back to something I brought up much earlier, Roderick is a great example of, perhaps the perfect example of a, a tense moment where you don't know what's going to happen because the character matters. In another scenario, a different story, a different series, you take that scenario, and if Roderick's about to get executed or killed, you can almost predict what's going to happen because he's too minor of a character in other, in other settings. So, like, well, if he dies, that's just, that's just a plot device to fire up the other characters and get them to take action or to, to you know, drive some psychological things. But in Game of Thrones, you care about Roderick. He's been around a while. He was, he's a crucial part of helping mostly Catelyn, but also Eddard, and you get the sense of how you know, how much they rely on him and how important he is. So when he dies, you really feel it. He's not, it's not just this minor character that goes off. His, his death, both as a loss to the, to the house that you care about and as a, a, you know, as a driver of the psychological drama behind Theon's character and showing off, as well as showing off the amazing acting skills of some of these characters. Bran and Theon both were just amazing in that scene. Uh, so... You know, that's what these, that's what secondary secondary characters do. We, we like to talk about them, flesh them out, but we also need to talk about how they interact with the major characters that drive the, the main points of the story. So it's all very good. So uh, we have. Um, did you guys have any more on? Did you want to say about Roderick or uh, or Jory or any of the Cassells or any of that information? The only thing I can say is, um, yeah, poor Roderick, man. That was <laughs> brutal, brutal death in the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just brutal. And he, and he, he uh, one character they don't mention, I don't know if they're going to include her in the show or not. There's one other Castell that's Beth. Roderick was married apparently twice, uh, maybe three times, I forget actually. Uh, and he had only one child, and that child was Beth. And I don't know if she's going to pop or they're going to use her or not, but um, one thing uh, just for fun to point out that Theon had used Beth. Uh, tried to use her as a way to keep Roderick from taking retaking the castle. He basically hung, strung her up on a noose, and was like, "Hey, if you guys try to take the castle back, I'll hang her." And he, that's what he did because he knew that you know he was overwhelmed. He only had you know his twenty men or whatever, and they had two hundred. So he's like, "Well, I can't fight them off. Maybe I can you know con them into holding off." So, wow, yeah, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, so Stop Theon is Theon looks even worse in that regard. So. Anyway, so let's move on. Let's talk about House Tarly. Let's talk about Samwell and his father and uh, and that whole relationship. Yeah, the Tarleys. Uh, the Tarleys are interesting. Um, um, House Tarleys of Torn Hill, and uh, and it's part of the Reach, which I know we love discussing about the Reach, uh, which are sworn to heist Tyrell, and and they're located in just at the edge of Dorne. Um, which is the southernmost portion, it's the southernmost kingdom of you know the seven kingdoms, and uh, their sigil is basically a huntsman riding along on green, 
and their words are revealed. They're not actually revealed in the books, but according to certain resources, um, it is the first in battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that would be interesting to see that one happen, especially with Samwell. <laughs> <laughs> no, see when I when I hear first in battle, and I'm thinking about Sam, it's like ah, cannon fodder. <laughs> <laughs> He's a large target. He can suck up a lot of arrows. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, point. You point out that they're on the border there of Dorne, yeah. which, if you think about what that means, the Dornish men, of course, are rebellious and warlike, and the Reachmen are known for, you know, they 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 fight, and you know, they're not they're not pushovers. So, yeah. Any, they're basically a, sort of like in a border region, which means that they're going to be more likely to be a martial culture than more inland in the rest of the reach because they're on the boards they're, they're more likely to, to to fight against raiders and people who are you know coming out from another region to come in and try and steal stuff or attack or whatever so mm. this is an important notion because this is exactly uh what sam isn't <laughs> he is not a fighter he's it's not. exactly what his father wanted his father by the way randall tarley one of the most respected and feared soldiers in all of Westeros. One of the few people to have beaten Robert in battle during Robert's Rebellion, and the considered probably one of the top three or four generals in all of Westeros, uh, right up there with Stannis and Tywin and all these guys. He is, he is top-notch. He is feared, respected, no-nonsense, uh, hardcore, harsh, you know, kind of a conservative, uh, soldier's soldier. Very much uh, a man's man as well. Very... You know, We'll see him later. This is not spoilery, but he's a guy that doesn't, you know, he's a doesn't think very highly of women. <laughs> uh, not that that's a common thing in Westeros, I suppose, but he's even worse than the average. So we are introduced to him through Sam. Sam tells us this awful story of how his father basically threatens to kill him if he doesn't voluntarily take the black, which is, of course, this is very unusual for a guy who's set to inherit his father's lands and title, as well as his ancestral Valyrian steel greatsword. Now, this is uh, this weapon is, is a, sounds like it's a lot like ice. It's a, it's a two-handed Valyrian steel weapon, so it's a big one, worn over the, ba worn over the back rather than uh, on the waist because it's such a large weapon. So that's what uh, Ned's sword ice is. So you got you to sense that it's a very similar weapon. So it's a very... It's a fearsome blade. It's it's. There's only you know. There's not a lot of Valyrian steel blades in Westeros, and this is one of the more famous ones. It's called Heartsbane. And when he when Randall Tarley mentions that he that Sam is not deserving of the title, he specifically mentions Heartsbane. It's it's a pride of the family. It's, it's sort of the, a centerpiece of their their legacy, their their whole their house and everything it needs. So, but I mean the guys. Are, terrible father to his son. Maybe he's a decent father to his next son, Dickon, who is apparently more like what he wanted out of his son. Sam, of course, is, you know, weak and more, he's interested in songs and music and girls. And he's a fat buddy <laughs> that, you know, yeah. he's just nothing like what his father wanted. I mean, he's just everything. No, so, so they're a dichotomy. They're complete opposites in, in a sense. And Sam is a good foil and a good friend of John because they're sort of similar. They're sort of not. They're they're sort of outcasts, but in a different way. 
John is sort of a forced outcast because he's a bastard, whereas Sam is a forced outcast because he's not what his father wanted. And his father mm -hmm. tried to get rid of him. So they kind of find themselves, but they're both nobles, which, as we talked about earlier, is kind of unusual in the wall these days. There's mostly just these criminals. So there's a lot they have in common. And that's an important thing that they have. Their, their friendship, I think, is important. Uh, so what do you guys think about the relationship between Sam and John and about as well as between Sam and his father? Even though we haven't seen Randall on screen a lot, we've got enough to go on, I think. Where I think, I um, I think the relationship with, uh, with Sam and John, as you mentioned, it just makes sense. It's, uh, it's for... for um, the, 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 uh, the real interesting thing that I just noticed, just, uh, hearing you go back over, like, Sam's backstory and whatnot. Okay, uh, when Sam first shows up, uh, at the wall, you know, of course, him and John, they would get along for the reasons you just mentioned, but also, those are the same reasons why John got along with Tyrion, which is why I was thinking if Tyrion would have sticked around long enough for Sam to show up, yeah, him and Sam probably would have hit it off too because all three of those characters are the outcast children. They're the outcast uh, sons. But the, uh, the exception would be that at least Tyrion tries to integrate himself into his family despite the fact of being thought of, uh, especially when it comes to uh, being like the lower of the children. You know, oh, and also he's the youngest. Right. So... Um, in, in, in that respect, I think um, if Tyrion had stuck around more, I think John and Sam would have actually came to admire him and look up to him because he has the one thing that they lack, which is that confidence. Like we spoke of early when comparing him to, uh, to Podrick, he has that confidence about him. Now, that's not to say that John doesn't have that confidence. John does. But with John, it's more of this, this sort of uh, hard-earned confidence. It's... You know, he had to work to get what he has. He and so access. Exactly. And so when you, when you take it even a step further, Sam is looking at that. And Sam gravitates to that because John has something that he really wants. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, John admires, even though that Sam doesn't have, you know, all, you know, the confidence and the bravery and stuff like that. Sam has this weird this really weird, optimistic view on things. No matter, no matter all the stuff that's happened to him, he just is so damn jolly. And John can't help, John can't help but look like, wow, I wish I had that. Yeah, so John, it, is John is the not like that. <laughs> yeah, he's not like that at all. And so it's kind of weird how you have this exchange between uh, between those characters, they each have something that the other one likes and admires. So it's somewhat of a mutual camaraderie. That makes a lot of sense. I think that John pointing at pointing to John's confidence is interesting because I think that John does have a lot, does have confidence in some areas and not so much in others. He has a lot of confidence in, in himself as a warrior, as a as a as a man, but not a lot of confidence in his place in the world where he belongs. He doesn't know where he fits in. I and I love your point about Tyrion being, he, Tyrion sort of, he's a Lannister and he knows it, and he owns who he is. He says, yeah, they're trying to push me out. I don't care. I'm still a Lannister. They can't make me not be a Lannister. My father can do whatever he wants. I'm a Lannister. I, you, That's right. You can't, 
spin it any way you want. I'm a Lannister. And that's a great point. Denwell's like, yeah, I'm a Tarly, but my father doesn't want me, so I'm, I'm a Night's Watch. And he, he kind of pushes it all away. He, 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 he does his vows before the old gods. He's not really trying to be a Tarly. He's just like, well, I'm not a Tarly. My father kicked me out. So I had a question then. If, sure. if Tyrion wasn't a Lannister, <laughs> would he be on the Night's Watch right now? He might be. That's an interesting question. I don't know where Tyrion would be. He, he would be dead. He might be dead. Yeah, he may not have yeah, be survived to adulthood, but he, if he, he did, they, they would have discarded him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> if he somehow survived to adulthood. He's the smartest guy in the entire <laughs> realm. <laughs> and you can't find out how smart he is when you drown him as a two-year-old baby or as an infant, you know? Because <laughs> he... That's another thing about Tyrion, by the way. Well, we pointed it out a couple times. As far as Hollywood goes, Tyrion... Peter Dinklage is not ugly, but in the books, Tyrion is not only a dwarf. He is ugly. He is a ugly. He brow, his hair is all messed up, his beard is all scraggly. and colors. Yeah, the yeah. stuff he's got in the show is nowhere near as pretty. Yeah, but that's just standard Hollywood. Hollywood makes everyone more attractive. <laughs> that's just normal. So... Uh, we have to wrap things up here because uh, we're pushing really hard on the time here. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up here in a minute. Um, a couple more things about Sam. I like this. I like these these things we touched on with the way they these characters similar with John and with Tyrion and with Sam. How they all have different pieces of the puzzle. They're all kind of outcasts, but they all handle it in different ways. And I love that initial scene with Sam and rather with John and Tyrion, where Tyrion tells him, "Do what I do. Own the fact." People call me a dwarf, and I'm like, yes, I am. You're right. What, what are you going to, you know, you can't hurt me. If you, you should have stopped him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, occasionally he does get mad. But <laughs> he tries to, he doesn't, he doesn't let it, like he says, he says, wear it like armor. You know, like, they can't, they can't hurt you with it if you don't. The only reason being called bastard hurts you is because you let it. You know, if you didn't care, then it wouldn't matter. Case in point, because uh, Tyrion got a new nickname now. You know, before they used to call him, you know, Imp and Dwarf, and now Tyrion, when he walks in, it's Half Man, Half Man, Half Man. He's like, Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. That's right. right. <laughs> They're not calling your name, you know. <laughs> that's what he's thinking. So yeah, so he shows he shows what he, what those things can be done, and you kind of hope that Sam and some of these other guys. That pick and Podrick too. That then some of this rubs off on them. It is too bad that Sam never. You're right. It's too bad that Sam never met Tyrion because that would have been a good role model, a character that doesn't that has a similar background, kind of an outcast from his house, but still made his way in the world pretty well. He's showing how it's done. Sam could definitely use a little of that confidence. I think that he has picked up some of it from John. Some of the because because John has some. Sam has some confidence too, like you said, Larry. Sam has sort of a. It's a confidence of optimism. He's like things are going to work out. He's like his, the world is really shat on him, but he's he still has this optimism somehow, and that's something that I think that John has picked up a little from him. He's like mm. you know things aren't all bad. For a great example, when Sam, when John is told he's going to be a steward, and he thinks that he's been set up by by Alistair Thorne, he thinks that they they're sticking him in there to be a servant because they want to screw him. And it's Sam has the optimistic view. He's like, no, look, John, that's not what's happening. They're grooming you for command. They want you to, this is a good thing, you know, and it's, I think it's his, it's a, it's a great parallel. It's Sam's optimism sees the truth, whereas John is like, he's, he's a sullen kind of negative guy. He, his, his initial reaction is, they're screwing me. And Sam's like, no, they're not screwing you. They're, they're doing a great thing for you. So, and yeah. it's pointed out in the next season, in season two, 
when Mormont, you know, pretty much shoves him against a tree, like, do you want to lead or not? Yep. And, and, and <laughs> he really does that. And he, he's like, you know, you want to lead or not? He's like, then learn to follow orders. It's funny, too, because Mormont, so much of Mormont's style with John is about showing him how it should be and not telling him what to do. He says, look, rather than convincing, rather than telling John, you are not going to run off and go help your father. You are not going to be a deserter. He says, look, man, whose war is more important? Does it really matter who sits on the Iron Throne when the dead walk? And John's like, oh, yeah, good point. He, he just kind of, he just sort of shot him this hard, cold logic and is like, yeah, he gave, he gave he uh he gave him that ultimatum. He uh he said, uh, "Are you a man of the Night's Watch, or are you a boy who wants to play at war?" Yeah, so he really showed him. He really kind of talked. He really knows how to talk to him. He didn't order him. He didn't say, "You got to do this because I say so." He's he made him feel like he needed to do it on his own. He's like he kind of shamed John. He kind of pointed him in the right direction, and then John's honor took over from there. He's like, once you show him the right thing what the right thing is, he'll realize what the right thing is. And that's one of the great mentoring. That's one of the great jobs you can do as a mentor, I think, in, real, in, in the real world, too. You, you just, if you've got a good person, you just got to point them in the right direction, and their, their own good character will take over from there. And that's, how, that's how Mormont tends to lead. He, he, he leads by example. Like, this is the right thing. It's plain once you see it. You know, like, this is, what, this is what's important. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Who cares about the Iron Throne? We've got... Army's coming towards us, you know, this is far more important. And, you know, you would think that wouldn't need to be explained, but, you know, uh, sometimes sometimes the, the, the forest is hard to see from trees, or, you know, that old cliche. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, great. Now, I think, uh, I think we've pretty much covered everything. Anybody got anything else they want to add before we end it up? No, I think that was good. I think, uh, I think we covered Sam. I think we covered... Uh, you know, we covered the Tarleys. We covered all those other families. Yeah. Pretty good. Very solid. I like that. I like it. We came up with some things that I, as, as is fun when we, when we do the open discussion, semi-open discussions, some of the shows we have a lot of notes prepared for, some we just have, you know, like some outlines. This is one of those episodes where we had some basics prepared, some outlines and details, and then we just kind of go with it. And uh, I, I think it went really well. Table. I just called the round table. It's just, no, we all just throw yeah. Yep. We, just, well, we came up with some things that I wasn't expecting us to talk about. That, that some the, the show went in, in some directions I didn't expect it to, but mm -hmm. and that's a good thing in this case. So we, we came up with some. I think we, we hit on some really poignant, um, some really poignant topics. And some, 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 we figured out a few things that maybe none of us were thinking about before, but it just kind of fit when you threw it out there. So, mm -hmm. and once again, I really, really want to thank Larry for joining us on this podcast. You know, if you want, you know, please by all means plug your ch channel. Podcast, whatnot, you know, by all means, go right. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good thing we need to do. Go, yeah, tell everybody about uh, how they can find more from you and uh, and where you know what what they can expect. Um, well, you can find me at youtube.com slash otaku assemble. That's uh, O T A K U and assemble. And um, what you can expect, um, my channel pretty much consists of reviews, um, mostly television reviews, uh, other TV shows. Um, in addition to Game of Thrones, like I also review um, like Sons of Anarchy. I'm currently reviewing the Arrow uh, CW series okay. um, and, and things of that nature. So um, especially for any listeners on the podcast, you know, season three is coming up um, in about a month. And so uh, hopefully some of you guys will tune in and uh, watch my episode reviews when season three starts off. And uh, I have the first two seasons there, you know, had those reviewed there. 
on the channel. So anybody who's listening in, you can go ahead, kind of catch up, get up to speed with my review. So when season three starts, you're right on track. Sounds okay. good. Yeah, I'll be doing that. <laughs> well, one thing I want to ask you, Larry, is uh, are you familiar with TalkShoe at all? With what? TalkShoe. It's a, a podcasting website. Um, yeah. The only reason I ask is because there's another podcaster, Podcast Winterfell, is going to be doing a preview of season three in a couple of weeks um, for you know uh, for, for Game of Thrones. And I was wondering if you wanted to maybe attend. Basically, you call in with your phone. And listen in, and you can talk if you want to. It's, it's, it's really neat. And, uh, yeah, it's Podcast Winterfell. If you want to check it out, it's on iTunes. Um, I believe they even have a website. We're both going to participate in that. It should be fun. Um, yeah. Just kind of like, you know, what do we expect to get out of Season 3 kind of thing is what's coming okay. up. So that's uh, hey, Larry, by the way, are you gonna, have you heard of this, uh, this, this new show, Vikings, that's going to be on History Channel? It's a new... Uh, I've heard about it's it. First, it's their first uh, self-produced show. It's, it's, it's a, you know, a drama series about set in Viking times. Is that cool. out yet? It, it starts March 3rd. The card starts March 3rd. Premieres. Oh, oh. So that might be a, uh, you know, you do, if you do show reviews, that might be something right up your alley, so... Who knows? I just thought I'd throw that out there. I'm excited about watching it. I have no idea if it's going to be any good. For all I know, it's going to be crappy, but it looks cool. It looks like a history channel, so hopefully it's authentic. It looks like it is from, from the, from the uh, previews and all. Well, I mean, you know you know history. Uh, did, did you get a chance to check out uh, Hatfields and McCoys? The history channel no, did, the miniseries? I've been meaning to. Dude, it got, it got freaking uh, Kevin Costner got an, uh, an Emmy for it, man. It was really good. Oh, okay. Nice. All right. It was, it was really, really good. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, uh, let's, let's go ahead, Steve. I was just say, is there anything else you want to plug? Any what? Uh, you want to do any more plugs for your for yourself or uh, for? Your um, um, any more plugs? Um, well, like I mentioned, you know, you can find me on my YouTube channel. Uh, the links on my YouTube channel also leads to like my uh, Facebook and Twitter, which is pretty much um, you know, Facebook.com slash Otaku Simple, Twitter.com slash Otaku Simple. But what I also have, um, one more thing I would like to plug, if possible. Um, I just published my first uh, comic book recently, oh, oh. Uh, back, back in November. Uh, it's called Totems. The first issue is currently available on uh, graphically.com. It's available for Nook, Kindle, Kobo, and for um, iTunes, you know, iPad, iPhone, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, any, anybody who might be interested... Uh, feel free to check it out. You can, you can visit my channel. It'll have the uh, the trailer for it. It's currently on my channel. And then there's also um, my Kickstarter video for the Kickstarter project I did um, last summer where it has more information on the on the book. Very nice. Excellent. That's very cool. And, of course, us for us, as usual, we are at... Uh, we're on Facebook at uh, History of Westeros. And we have been... Gradually getting more and more active on our Facebook and Twitter as more and more users give us feedback and interact with us. Recently on Twitter, in fact, uh, I've been having conversations with users, people who have been asking questions and starting discussions with me, uh, as well as with Steve. You never know which of us is actually on the Twitter account at any given time. We share it. But feel free to do that. We, are always, uh, we always love to discuss the series if you have questions about characters or things that you think are going to happen yeah. or plot device or anything like that. And, of course, on Twitter, we're known as Westeros History. Yeah, at Westeros History, that's right. As well as on uh, Facebook, 
Facebook and uh, our, our email address. If you ever want to just email us and just say throw a question out there or suggestion to another topic, you know, we're, we're Westeros History at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be more than happy to, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be more than happy to research it and look into it. Perfect. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with, uh, we're, I believe our next podcast is going to be on, we're going to be doing, we're working on the religions of Westeros. We'll probably start with the old gods. We, we thought maybe we'd cover it all in one podcast, but it looks like the old gods could take up a whole podcast of their own, but not sure about that yet, so just sit tight and wait and see what happens. Yeah, the religions will be very, very, very extensive, I imagine. So uh, that's it for the podcast. Again, once again, thanks for listening. And, uh, yeah, look forward to iTunes in a short bit.